Hello and welcome to episode 6 of History Zine. There's bits of all sorts for you in this episode. We will be focusing quite specifically on sieges in the early 18th century and the French engineer Vauban in particular. But before that, let's start off with the podcast review. And so, on to the podcast review. This is a particularly fun one this week, because I not only had a podcast to listen to and to review, I actually had an activity to do, because this is a pod trail. And it's from podtrail.com, and they are at historynetwork.org. And the pod trail is round the Soho area of London. And it starts off at Tottenham Court Road tube station and just goes down the back streets, down to Soho Square, round Soho Square and out Broad Street, Carnaby Street and ending up at the London Palladium. Now, this, this was a real find. I, I sort of stumbled over it on iTunes and there's only one episode so far and hopefully there'll be, there'll be more to come. Now, so far I've been all positive and it, it was very good. It was nice to listen to. There's two presenters, male and female, both with really nice voices. But... I actually went down and did the walking tour. And that's where it kind of fell apart. I mean, it was still fun. But I don't know. I wonder if they actually went and did the walking tour themselves. Because uh, nothing seemed to quite fit. Uh, There were lots of times where I didn't quite know where I should be or even what I should be looking at. There were... We we downloaded a map. There's a there's a map that goes with it. They they charge a pound, you know, which is no big deal really. They charge a pound for the map, and the map actually doesn't have all the street names that are mentioned on the podcast. I think there's one Carlisle Street that is missed off entirely. So it's a little confusing from time to time. Having said this, there are some nice stories here. There are some good stories. There's some stories that fit in with where you're actually supposed to be, what you're actually looking at. I mean, right at the beginning, there's uh, you go down Manette Street, which is just down the side of Foyles there, and there's a, a big golden arm stuck on the side of the building, and this equates with a passage from Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities about a giant arm hammering gold. This is very much Dickens' country round here. There's a lot of Charles Dickens' connections around this area. In the tour, then, you move on down here. You move on underneath the Pillars of Hercules, and then you turn right down to Soho Square. And that's when it all starts to get a bit muddled. There are, there are houses they're telling you about. There are little stories about the houses. Um, some of them weren't... Well, I didn't find them enthralling. Not until we got round the other side of the square, and they point out the French Protestant church. Uh, I find that quite intriguing, mainly because um, in our history, we, we often come across, you know, throwaway lines about the French Huguenot, about how they were kicked out of France, about the re- revocation of the Edict of Nantes. And so you get all these French Protestants flooding across the Channel, over to here, over to Holland. And it's nice to see this real physical example of it in the square, even though this actual church we're pointing out here isn't one of the original ones. It's a more recent one, is this. Uh, this particular church was only, I think, 100, 150 years old or something. But, yeah, it was great seeing it and great seeing that connection with... 
this group of people that came across and brought so many skills and talents to this country from France. There are there are many people who say say Britain's textile industry was built upon the skills that these people brought across. And of course during the Industrial Revolution it's the British textile industry that is foremost at putting Britain at the top of that economic league. Anyway, back back to this little tour that I was doing. And um, we, we went from there, we went on to, there's Karl Marx's house, and then you come back, you're going down to Broadwick Street. Now, this was my favourite story of the tour. I've heard this story so many times, and I love it, because it's a real piece of useful detective work. In Broadwick Street, now, you can see uh, a pump. It's, um, I, I, don't, I don't even know if it's a real pump, but th- this is a mock-up of the original pump. And the story behind this pump comes from 1854, when Dr John Snow was investigating a cholera outbreak there. And he did what you should always really do in this situation. You actually go to the place where it happened, and you start asking questions around there, and you start looking at how they lived their life. And the common denominator amongst so many of these cholera victims seemed to centre around the water pump in Broad Street. There were a few anomalies. There were, there were some people that had caught this cholera sickness from a little further away. So he thought he'd concentrate on the anomalies. And so he went to some of these and he asked the questions and yet again it came up. They had sent for water specifically from the Broad Street pump because they liked the taste of that water. And two days later they were dead. There was another anomaly that was close to Broad Street. There was a brewery there. And yet, there had been no sickness. Went along to ask them. It turns out they have their own well. And very few of them apparently drink water anyway. They're allowed to drink a certain amount of the product of the brewery. So, that's a great story. And there's this mock-up of the pump there in Broad Street. Well, it's Broadwick Street now. It used to be called Broad Street back then. And... It's not in the exact place where it was before. Uh, This tour says that there's a a yellow paving stone outside the Jon Snow pub at the corner there. Couldn't find this yellow paving stone. But it's going to be around that sort of area. It's the junction of two roads, which is where you would put a pump. So we follow the tour on from there. It goes down Carnaby Street. They talk about Carnaby Street, uh, the... The buzz and the excitement that was in Carnaby Street during the 1950s and the 1960s when it was the centre of the fashion world. We walk along there, we walk along there to uh, Liberties at the end. And a <laughs> bit of confusion here is t- telling us to look at Liberties. We've, we've got a picture on our little map here. And it looks nothing like this Liberties that we can see. We eventually figured out that you had to go past this side of Liberty and along the side and round to the back, well, what was the back from the direction we were walking then you could look back at liberties then on from there and down to the london palladium and then back to the tube station so a lovely little walk and yet it could have been so much better so i don't like to just moan about things let's let's try and make this constructive let's think how could we make this walk better if i were writing the walk if i was scripting it if i were recording it how would i do it well Obviously, I'd collect the sort of information that they did. And there's some good information here. You would probably get a map and you would go around and you look at the different points, see if you could find out historical connections with our different points. And so then you get a sort of sketch of what you wanted to do. Then, 
most importantly, you go out and you walk the tour. And first, you do a quick walk round, look at the different points, see if anything else strikes you of interest, see if there's anything else that you can see that looks historically significant. Then research that. Then walk it again. And this time, time it exactly. And this time, look for reference points as you're going along. So you would go along, there was one reference point that they mentioned that was quite a good one, the Pillars of Hercules. So we walked through the Pillars of Hercules. Then it's a little bit unclear, and I would have liked some more reference point. I would have liked to have been told at the point where we entered the square, there's a junction, a road junction there. Tell us at that point. Go along, tell us this is a blue door, red door, whatever. I know these things can change, but, you know, You've got to make the attempt. I suppose you, you've got to try and look for things that are unlikely to change. You can give us reference points like house numbers. Tell us the house number we might be walking past. Tell us what you can see while you're walking past it. And then when we stop to look at the building that is historically significant, get us facing the right way, make sure we're looking at the right house number, tell us what you can see around us, and then start to tell your story. And then, when you finish talking about that, you've got two options. Uh, I know a lot of walking tours, some of the ones that I've done, will tell you to switch off and then switch on again when you get to the next point. And they'll explain very carefully where the next point is. Another approach is just to tell the listener that you finished talking about this and then ask them to turn in a particular direction, walk towards something, explain what they're walking towards and just keep talking to them while they're walking to the next building of, of historical interest. So there are two different approaches. I would prefer the latter because I would like it to be a sort of continuous buzz. But one of the benefits of the former is that while they've switched off the recording, they can talk to their friends about what they've just been listening to, about the building they've just seen, so they can share the experience. While you're actually listening to an audio tour, you can feel a little cut off from your friends. So really, I think that's, that's all I need to say. Uh, the only things wrong with the tour were that the directions weren't clear enough and the map wasn't clear enough. I think, I mean, these are quite minor things to be fixed. It's, it's just a matter of doing the timings and making the walk more structured and just a little more care of the map. And I have a feeling that the next one will probably be really good. I'll send along my review to the people at podtrail.com and I'll let you know if there's any response. Unless, of course, the response is very, very rude and then I'll just hint at what it might have been. We want to keep this a clean show. Right, I promised you last time I was going to tell you a little bit about the reenactment taking place at Oudenaar this year. I haven't got a lot of detail for you, but I'll tell you what I do know. This is a reenactment that's going to take place over the weekend of the 12th and 13th of July in 2008. It's taking place then because it's the 300th anniversary of the original battle. This is a battle that has a particular relevance to the subject we've been covering here. This is the War of the Spanish Succession. And all the great figures I've mentioned were at this battle. We've got Prince Eugene there, we've got the Margrave of Baden, and we've got the Duke of Marlborough, all fighting the French. And the reenactment of this will be taking place in Oudenaarde, which is in Belgium. That, yet again, the dates for that are the 12th and 13th of July. 
I've already booked my place in a hotel there at uh, La Pomme d'Or. I'll be there from the 11th of July, so anybody that wants to come along and say hello, please feel free to do so. I'll post a link to the website. It doesn't say a great deal as yet. just gives the information I've just given you, the, the dates. Uh, I'll read you the bit at the end. It says, The troops pitch camp in town from the 11th of July 2008. English, Irish, Dutch, French and various other nationalities come to Oudenaarde to stage a unique spectacle evoking the battle from 300 years ago. Groups of civilians turn Oudenaarde into an 18th century town. Imagine yourself in another world and come to Oudenaarde for a unique experience. So that's Oudenaarde, 12th, 13th of July, 2008. Look forward to seeing some of you there. Now, interesting web things that I found this week. Well, this isn't one that I found this week, but I wanted to give it a mention. It's by far the best website on the net on the subject of the War of the Spanish Succession. And it's called www.spanishsuccession.nl. So, a Dutch site with a huge amount of information. The site is a funny pink colour, but the content of the site is quite amazing. And still being regularly updated, still being added to all the time. I'll post a link to that and to the Udenad site on my blog, which is at httphistorizine.com. I also want to give a quick mention to Lisa from the Genealogy Gems podcast. She's been giving me a few hints and tips on how to improve my iTunes rankings. One of them being to improve the description I had on there. And the other, to ask you lot out there if you could post reviews of this podcast on the iTunes pages. Those reviews really help the rankings. And if I can get back on that top 20 listing again, it'll enable more people to be able to find this podcast. Finally, a mention for a blog called anisaman.blogspot.com. Anisaman is all one word. There's a lot of great podcast reviews on that site, and in particular, history podcast reviews. And I've asked Dan if he can possibly record one of these reviews for me here at History Zine. If that all works out, hopefully you'll hear that next time. We've got no linguistic history trivia bit this time. Uh, The one I prepared, I wasn't entirely happy with. So I'll throw that out, and we'll have a brand new one next time. And now, everybody, it's time for our special feature, The War of the Spanish Succession. This time we'll be looking at sieges and the nature of war in the early 18th century. Now, we've seen in the past few podcasts uh, quite a few engagements, and Eugene, particularly in North Italy, is getting involved in some real heavyweight battles. Over this side of Europe, in Flanders, people seem to be being much more cautious. There's a much stronger emphasis on sieges rather than open battles in the field. And so I want to talk a little about the way warfare was changing in the late 1600s, early 1700s, and why this attitude of caution was so prevalent. Now, the first reason was that armies had got so much bigger. You no longer just put a few well-trained knights in the field. You no longer had to train bowmen for 20 years before they could pull a 120-pound bow. What you did was got a load of muskets, and a lot of people to operate those muskets. Back them up with some artillery and some cavalrymen. Give them a couple of months training, and send them out into the field. So here, it's numbers that are going to count, 
rather than skill. The skill is going to come in in how you manipulate those numbers, how you move your men around on the battlefield, and how you get them in the right place to inflict the maximum amount of damage. Now, we'd seen some changes in the type of armies we were getting at this time. During the religious wars, you had muskets then, but you had matchlock muskets, and these were backed up by pikemen. Matchlock muskets were pretty good stuff. I mean, they made a lot of noise, and when they worked, they could do a lot of damage. But we're getting flintlock muskets coming along now, and they're not a hugely different weapon, but they are a great deal more reliable. You could discharge them eight times faster, and they were a lot less likely to misfire. Pikemen were also starting to disappear, because of the invention of the bayonet. Now, at first, the bayonet was more of a hindrance than a help, because you had it stuck in the end of your gun or your musket. But then we got the ring bayonet, which was ringed round the end of your musket, so you could still fire with the bayonet attached. And then, when you get close, get stuck in there and do some real damage. And, of course, the bayonet is good defence against charging cavalry. So, you can start to phase the pikemen out of your armies and your musket men will act as a musket man and a pikeman too. Now, this improvement in weapons technology meant the casualties in a battle were much, much higher. I'll give you an example from David Chandler's book, Marlborough as Military Commander. The Battle of Steinkirk in 1692. This was considered one of the fiercest infantry actions ever fought at the time, and... There was a total of 90,000 troops engaged in this battle. A lot of these were using pikes and matchlock muskets. And there were only about 4,000 casualties. Now compare this with the Battle of Blenheim in 1704. This is only 12 years after Steinkirk. But we've had the changeover from matchlock to flintlock muskets. We've had the changeover from pikemen to the musketmen carrying bayonets. And here at the Battle of Blenheim, there were 108,000 men engaged, and 32,000 of them were killed or wounded. I think you've got to agree, the difference is astounding. And this is a regular trend in any battle now. You can expect to lose far more men than you would have done only 12 years previously. And this, of course, absolutely terrified monarchs and governments who were having to try and put armies in the field and, of course, pay for them to be there. So one battle could be disastrous to your economy. And this is the primary reason behind the caution of so many generals and commanders. They're absolutely terrified that they could lose this army that they send out into battle and then have to go back to their monarch or their government and try to explain why they lost this army and try to raise another one. Now, the other reason why there was so much caution is a little more philosophical. During the 1600s, we've had what are called the religious wars in Europe. This is Protestants and Catholics fighting ferociously across nearly every country in Europe. This is a liturgy of atrocities committed one upon the other in the name of God and in the name of religion. And the ferocity of these wars, the despicable nature of so many of the atrocities visited upon soldiers and civilians alike, 
left some fearsome psychic scars upon so many of the population of Europe. And we're coming into what's called the Age of Reason now, the very beginning of the Age of Enlightenment. Philosophers and rulers and governments and enlightened peoples everywhere are starting to question religion, are starting to question fanaticism, and are starting to look at new ways of conducting one's life, of conducting a government, and of conducting oneself as a human being. So this new thought, these new movements are also affecting the way governments conduct war. And someone who I think personifies or sums up these new modes of thoughts is a French engineer called Vauban. And Vauban studied sieges in considerable detail and wrote a great deal on the subject. This is sieges from the point of view of the besieged and those carrying out the siege. And it wasn't all theory. He actually built a great number of cities. He fortified a large number of cities and he besieged a large number of cities on behalf of his patron, Louis XIV of France. And a, a Vauban fortress is a very strange looking thing indeed. It's sort of, well, how it's shown in plans and such is as a sort of eight-pointed star. And inside that eight-pointed star is yet another eight-pointed star. I actually tried to draw one of these Vauban fortresses for you on the, on the blog, and it looked like a child had drawn it. But I was really fortunate in that I found a wonderful plan of a Vauban fortress on the Wikipedia website, not under the Vauban entry, but under the entry for sieges. So I shall put a copy of that picture on my website. That's httphistoryzine.com. And also with that, I'll put a link to an actual photograph of a Vauban fortress, or rather a PDF containing a photograph. And this is a PDF you'll find at www.sites-vauban.org. And the picture I want you to look at in particular is an aerial photograph of Saint-Martin-de-Ris, or Saint-Martin-de-Ris. I can never remember what that accent does over the E, whether it makes it an, an E or an E. And that picture shows you how one of these sort of star-shaped bits overlooks another one. And so every promontory is an ideal place to pour cannon fire and musket fire down upon your enemies. It's a beautifully designed fortress. And you'll be able to see in these pictures how you can manoeuvre cannons around to different places on the fortress. So wherever your enemy is attacking, you can quickly get a lot of cannons and muskets there. And it will cost them dearly to come up against this fortress. So much of Vauban's design is about inflicting maximum damage on your besiegers, but also about creating a place that you can fall back to if you lose a section of the fortress. So you can fight all the way back, and it's costing your enemy more and more in terms of casualties all the way. The hope is that you will cost them so much in casualties that they'll give up, or that a relieving force will be able to come along and drive off your besiegers. Now, Vauban also created a template for a siege. And I shall take you through this template, and you'll see just what a beautiful creation it is. I say beautiful, I mean all these things cost huge amounts of human lives. They're all fearsome and horrible. But I mean beautiful here in terms of beautifully thought out. 
in terms of being an intellectual masterpiece. Anyway, I'll take you through the procedure of besieging a town. Now, to start off with, you obviously choose your town, you bring along your supplies, your shovels, your army, your weapons, and you take them to the town you want to besiege. You get close to the town and you split off into two parts. Uh, one, one section of your force will go on towards the town. The other section of your force will form a defensive line to drive off any armies that might come along and interrupt your siege. The cavalry would close off all the roads around the town. That would be the beginning of your siege. Here you're expected to ask the defender whether he would like to capitulate. He's almost certainly going to say no, but it's kind of part of the procedure that you're expected to ask at this point. Now you'll start to dig trenches around the town. And you'll dig two trenches to start with, a trench of circumvallation and a trench of contravallation. The outer trench, you would use this to defend against any enemies coming in to attempt to relieve the siege. And the inner trench is your base from which to launch the siege. It's a sort of safe haven and it's just out of range of cannon shot of the town. At this point, your town is totally isolated, or hopefully it's totally isolated. You can ask them again whether they wish to capitulate at this point. Quite likely, yet again, they're going to say no. Now, you'll dig your first trench forward that comes within cannon range. You're going to dig three of these altogether, your first, second and third parallels. Your first parallel is at about 600 yards. That's 600 yards from your target, which is the walls or the bastion. You've probably got your particular target by now, the particular bastion you're aiming for, but you don't let them know, obviously. So you're going forward, you're zigzagging forward into the next parallel, but you're taking a few zigzags forwards. You don't let the enemy know quite where you're going to strike just yet. Your next parallel is about 400 yards from the walls. Now, by the time you put in this one in, your heavy siege train should have arrived. You'll have your heavy cannons there, and you can start battering the walls. Also, if you want to make your enemy really miserable, you'll start dropping mortar fire into the town. Quite often, the sort of carnage this produces might be enough to completely destroy the morale of your enemy, and they may give up. Next, you'll go in again to build your third parallel. And this will only be about 200 metres away from the walls. Under cover of night, you'll bring your cannons forward into this last trench and start battering the walls. You can do some real damage from this distance. You're looking to break open a breach in the walls and smash them down so that you get a fine slope of rubble which your men can charge up. At the same time as you've been doing all this, you've got your miners tunnelling underneath the walls to weaken them. So when your cannons hit them, it's more likely to smash them down. And the weight of all that rubble on the holes that you've dug underneath will make them all drop. Now at this time, if you've created a breach, this is when you're quite likely to get a capitulation. This is when you're quite likely to get a surrender from the town. And it should still be quite civilised at this point. If they surrender at this point, then they would expect to walk away with their lives. They would expect to be able to just march the soldiers out of the garrison, lay their arms down, and then just walk away. If the attack has to go further, I mean, quite likely they'll fall back on the citadel and defend from there. Then you might ask for much harsher terms once you get in there. Now, these sieges could last a few days. They could last... 
four months. And you would lose soldiers at these sieges. Obviously, people would be killed. But you would be losing comparatively small amounts each day. And this would be spread across quite a period of time. So when your monarch or your government gets their battle reports back, they're getting casualty figures of, oh, 200 today or 300 today. They're not getting casualty figures of 30,000 in one day. So sieges are much the preferred way of making war for most of the generals and commanders of the time. The Duke of Marlborough and Prince Eugene were exceptions here. They preferred the open battle. They preferred to do something absolutely decisive. And they followed actually a French marshal's advice from the previous generation. This is a French marshal called Turenne. And he is said to have given this advice to Condé. He said, make few sieges and fight plenty of battles. When you are master of the countryside, the villagers will give us the towns. Now, following French marshals didn't take up Turenne's advice here. And perhaps if they did, the war would have gone quite differently. Now, I know I haven't pushed things on much further here, and I'll do a sort of round-up of 1702 next time, and we'll push on the narrative. But I just wanted to outline the way war was conducted and why sieges were so important. And then as we move on, we'll see the way that Marlborough and Eugene were able to capitalise on the way war was changing and were able to change with it probably much faster than many of the French marshals. So we'll look at some of their battle tactics as we go forward to battles such as Blenheim and Oudenard. And, and when people come to you and they say the Napoleonic Wars were the first time this happened or that happened, you'll be able to correct them and say, no, actually, Marlborough and Eugene were doing it a hundred years earlier. Because this is the start of modern warfare. These are the wars where the whole concept of warfare changed. It's more ferocious, it's more costly, it's more vicious. Even though it's done according to what they call these rules of war. This is modern warfare and it all starts with Marlborough and Eugene. Goodbye for now from History Zine. See you next time.